Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. We're continuing our series called Apocalypse on the book of Revelation. And Apocalypse just means revealing or revelation. And that's helpful for us to remember that's what this book is. It is not a concealing, it is a revealing. God expected his people to be able to understand what the message of this book is. So far we've seen that this message comes from God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Spirit, and Son. Though it is specially focused on the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. And in his opening, John also proclaims that Jesus loves us. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. He's made us a kingdom and priests to God. And he ascribes glory and dominion to God. And specifically to Christ. Last week in verse 7, as we looked at the theme we saw that the theme of the book is that Jesus is coming in judgment on those who have rejected and murdered him. And now this morning, as we turn to the rest of chapter 1, we'll see the first vision of the book. And it's a vision of the Son of Man. And like so much that we've seen already, it draws heavily on the Old Testament for its imagery. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 And let me go ahead and read that as we begin this morning. Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in in the book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This morning, I'm just going to walk through this passage, kind of for the first half of the message, explaining what's there. And then in the second half, I want to just pick some of the the main ideas and themes and just kind of spend some time thinking about those, because they're really helpful things for us to know for our own Christian life. 
So as we walk through it, we'll just walk through it a couple verses at a time. And we begin with the first three verses here, which talks about John's commission. John says that he is their brother. He's speaking to these churches that he's writing to. He's their brother and partner in three things. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. And these three things are in Jesus. Meaning, it's the fact that John and these churches are both in Christ. They're connected to Christ. That means that they share in these things together. So what do each of these things mean? Well, tribulation means suffering or difficulty. The churches are already experiencing, will continue to experience difficulty, suffering, because they're faithfully following Christ. John's already experiencing that suffering himself, too. The kingdom is referring to Christ's kingdom. Jesus has ascended to the throne. His kingdom has begun. He's ruling and reigning until he puts all things in subjection under his feet. And these churches are part of Christ's kingdom. Patient endurance is describing their faithfulness in the midst of suffering. They remain faithful to Christ. And all three of these things exist together at the same time. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you won't suffer. The fact that Christ is reigning doesn't mean that everyone bows the knee to him yet. That will happen, but in the meantime, all three of these things exist together. Tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. And then John says that he's on the island of Patmos. Now, we looked at this map before, but here's Patmos, this little island off the coast of Asia Minor. And <clears throat> Patmos is a place where political exiles were sent. Troublemakers that the Roman Empire didn't want to have influencing the people. And that tells you that John's message that he's been proclaiming was not just a, a spiritual message, not just up there in the clouds somewhere, not just inside your heart kind of message. It had political implications. When John proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, that means that Caesar is not. It was enough of a political message that Rome saw the need to exile him. <clears throat> now, many in the church today will say that our message should never be political. We're about men's souls, not their politics. But John understood that if Jesus is Lord, his dominion means that he's Lord of all, every area of life. There is no sphere of existence that is somehow exempt from the lordship of Christ. Where did John come up with this message <clears throat> that got him exiled? Is it something that he added to scripture? Well, no, he tells us specifically that he's been exiled on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word of God, rightly understood and proclaimed, confronts the powers of this world. And so John is in exile. And John describes how this vision came to him. He says he was in the spirit. <clears throat> now, what does that mean? Was he in a trance, in a vision? We don't know the details of that, other than in some way he's under the direct influence of the spirit of God. And this was on the Lord's day. It's possible that this could have some kind of hint towards the day of the Lord, but most likely it just means 
on Sunday, <clears throat> the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And he heard a voice like a trumpet. Now, this is something to notice because this is going to be a pattern throughout the book where John hears something and then he turns to look and he sees something. He hears, then he sees. And that's a technique that also should help us as we're trying to understand when we hear something, then we should kind of pay attention and look. What are we going to see next? So he hears a voice like a trumpet and then he looks to see and John's told to write down what he sees and send it to the seven churches. And these churches, I'll go back to the map here, they're the ones that are listed here. These seven churches are real historical churches on Asia Minor. And John's in fairly close proximity to these churches, but he's not free to visit them because he's in exile. Now, when we get to chapters two and three, if you were to kind of just look ahead at what you find in those two chapters, you'll see not only do these seven churches receive the whole book of Revelation as a message to them as a group, but they each also get their own individual message from Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next couple of weeks. Then in the next group of verses, verses 12 to 16, we have John's vision of Jesus, what he sees. So when John turns to see what the voice is talking about, the first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. And when we get down to verse 20, we see that the lampstands are the seven churches. But John sees one like a son of man standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. Remember, son of man is one of Jesus' favorite names for himself. It points back to Daniel and the vision, a couple of visions in the book of Daniel. So the description of Jesus here in John's vision is actually drawn from the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, primarily 10, as well as a couple other places in the Old Testament. Daniel 7 describes the Ancient of Days, and then it talks about the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days, and Daniel 10 gives a vision specifically of the Son of Man. So here in Revelation 1, if you just kind of walk through those verses and see the vision that's given here, Jesus is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Daniel 10.4 says that the Son of Man is clothed in fine linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. The long robe signifies the robe of the high priest. That's in the Old Testament who is described as having a long robe like that. And the golden sash indicates royalty. This is a priest king. John sees that Jesus has white hair like white wool, like snow. Daniel 7 verse 9, describing the ancient of days, says that he has clothing white as snow and the hair of his head is like pure wool. And that indicates purity or holiness. Back in Revelation 1, Jesus has Eyes like a flame of fire. Daniel 10.6, the Son of Man has eyes like flaming torches. This means that Jesus sees all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. When he executes judgment then, it's perfect judgment because he sees everything as it really is. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was uh, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, told the, the story of being at a dinner party at one point. And uh, the conversation was discussing how everyone had skeletons in their closet. You know, this is something that 
a writer of mysteries would be thinking about. And they decided to put this theory to the test, the, the group of people that were there. So they thought of the most upright Christian man that they knew, a man whose word was accepted in all things. And they sent him a telegram that said simply, all is discovered, flee at once. He disappeared the next day, was never seen again. We all have these things in our lives that if the eyes of Christ are turned on us, those all-seeing eyes, we would not want those things to be seen. But at the same time, we're talking about the Son of Man who is the judge of all the earth, and we want him to see every injustice that has ever been committed and deal with it. And he will. He is the perfect judge. Continuing on then in Revelation 1, we, you, you see in that vision that Jesus has feet like burnished bronze. Daniel 10.6 says that the Son of Man has arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Bronze was a metal that was used for tools of war because it's more common than gold or silver, but it's hard enough for battle. So this is kind of indicating that Jesus is ready to make war. He has vo a voice like the roar of many waters. Again, Daniel 10.6, the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. His voice is powerful, causes things to happen. Then we see that he has seven stars in his right hand. Now we'll get to this again down in verse 20, but we learn there that these are the angels of the seven churches. John tells us that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This part of the image doesn't come from Daniel. It comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 49 verse 2. This is now the Messiah, the promised Messiah who's speaking. And he says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And earlier in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 11, also speaking of the Messiah, and specifically of the Messiah as the one who brings judgment, Isaiah 11.4, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So John sees Jesus as one whose words bring judgment. And in John's vision, the Son of Man's face was like the sun shining in full strength. The description of the Son of Man in Daniel 10 and verse 6 says that his face was like the appearance of lightning. It speaks to the glory and majesty of his appearance. And it's worth noting, too, as you think about that, that those things were pulled from both Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Daniel 7 describing the Ancient of Days, Daniel 10 describing the Son of Man. Both of those things are characteristics that are here seen to be describing Christ. Which means that Jesus is not only the Messiah and the Son of Man, but he shares the characteristics of the Ancient of Days. He is the God-Man. Then we see John's reaction, verses 17 and 18. When John sees this vision of Jesus, he falls at his feet because of the majesty and glory that he's seeing. Now, remember, John knows Jesus. He spent three years walking around watching and listening to Jesus. But now, with Jesus in his glory, John falls at Jesus' feet. And it says that Jesus laid his right hand on John. 
as a side note, this is another example of why the vision is not supposed to be taken in a woodenly literal way, because the vision also tells us that he has seven stars in his right hand. So how does he lay his right hand on John? Does he put the stars down to do that? You're just not supposed to push the image quite that far. It's communicating something to us. But Jesus tells John, fear not. And he gives three reasons. Now, this idea, fear not. I want to come back to this at the end this morning because Jesus is telling John, fear not. But this message also gets passed on to the churches because the churches are supposed to see this vision of Jesus. That also means it gets passed on to us. So this message, fear not, is not just for John. Because the Jesus that John sees is the same Jesus who's in our midst, okay? It's the same Jesus. So the message of fear not also applies to us. But there's three reasons here that John is told, fear not. First one, he's the first and the last. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. And he's directing all of human history. So don't be afraid. Second reason, he's the living one. He died and he's alive forevermore. This Jesus, who is victorious over death, can accomplish all that he promised to do. So don't be afraid. And third, he has the keys of death and Hades. You may be facing tribulation and persecution. But remember, Jesus determines when someone enters death and if they get out. So don't be afraid. In C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children are learning their way around Narnia, guided by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And when the children hear the beavers speak reverently of Aslan, they cautiously ask more about him, asking if he's a man. And Mr. Beaver responds, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the idea that we should have in this vision of the Son of Man. There is an overwhelmingness to this vision. This, there's majesty, there's glory here. But at the same time, the message is, don't be afraid. If you belong to Jesus, this Jesus is on your side. Verses 19 and 20, then, we have Jesus' explanation. Jesus tells John to write down the things that he's seen, some things which already are and some things which are about to take place. The churches will be encouraged by knowing that Jesus is ruling and reigning and by being prepared for what's about to happen soon. And then Jesus explains two particular aspects of the vision. 
First of all, the seven stars in Jesus' hand are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether these are angels like we think of angels as in spiritual beings or if they are the pastors of the churches because the word angel is just the generic word for messenger. And it's used in the Bible lots of times for angels, spiritual beings, but it's also used lots of times for pastors. Most of the Puritan pastors believed that this was referring to the pastors of the churches. And here's why. William Fenner, for example, explained that if you look at chapters 2 and 3, they receive both commendation and correction. So if they were angels, they wouldn't need to receive correction unless they were fallen angels and then they wouldn't receive any commendation. So they seem to be, in his estimation, the pastors of the churches. And James Durham explained that angels, spiritual beings, minister to people, but never in the Bible are they given the everlasting gospel to preach because they've not experienced it themselves. This is one of the things that angels long to look into, so they don't actually have the everlasting gospel to preach. And the treasure of the gospel, Paul tells us, is put in earthen vessels, humans, so that the excellence of its power will be seen to be of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4. Matthew Poole noted that these stars are in Jesus' right hand, he says the right hand is the hand of power, Psalm 21.8. It's the hand of favor, Psalm 44.3. And it's the hand of honor and dignity, Psalm 110 verse 1. So he says these are ministers of the gospel who, having in all times been most exposed to the malice and rage of enemies, Christ is said to hold them in his right hand as to signify the dignity that he has put upon them and the favor he has showed them so also to show his resolution to protect them according to his promise. So he's saying, in this world of the Roman Empire, if the pastors are proclaiming the message that Jesus is Lord, then they are probably the most likely ones to receive the wrath of Rome. And so he sees the idea that they're held in the hand of Jesus as Jesus indicating Yes, you're going to face these difficulties, but you're held in my hand, giving them confidence. And we should also note that the authority that the pastors have is the authority of Jesus delegated to them through his word. So that's the seven stars. And then Jesus also explains the seven lampstands. And these are the seven churches. The fact that they're lampstands calls to mind Israel's tabernacle with its lampstand in the holy place. So now the churches are seen to be the new Israel. Whereas in the Old Testament, there was only one lampstand with seven branches. Now there's seven lampstands, presumably also with seven branches each. No longer is God's work focused on one nation, but now it's on people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the light of the lampstand recalls Jesus's words to his followers, that they're the light of the world. That light is powered by the Spirit. We saw that previously in the vision of Zechariah. Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And that's speaking of what is fueling the lamps. So the light is fueled by the Spirit. You're the light of the world. That's not something that you have in and of yourself. That's the Spirit of God working in you. 
So that's the text. That's just kind of explaining what we're finding in there. What I want to do now is just think through some of the different themes that are in here. And primarily, the, 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 the biggest thing that we should walk away with is this idea that Jesus is the priest king. That's what the vision is telling us. In this vision, Jesus is wearing the long robe that the Old Testament says is what the priest wore. And he's among the lampstands. One of the roles of the priest was to tend the lampstands, or tend the lamps in the tabernacle. And Jesus is tending the lampstands, tending the churches. We know from elsewhere in scripture that he is called our great high priest. But he's also pictured in this vision as sharing characteristics with the Ancient of Days. He's the son of man who, in Daniel, came up to the Ancient of Days and took his place on the throne. Jesus is the Messiah, the king, who's ruling and reigning. He exercises dominion over the earth through the church. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the king. So, putting those together, he is the great priest king. He's victorious over death. How far does Jesus' kingship extend? He's king even over the realm of the dead. He holds the keys of death and Hades. Hades is the realm of the dead. Some of the older translations translate that as hell, but it's not specifically speaking of hell. It's the land of the dead is what this is speaking of, the realm of the dead. And the psalmist asks in Psalm 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Sheol is the grave or Hades. And the answer to that is, of course, Christ. He was imprisoned there, but he has now defeated death. So now he controls the doors of death itself. No one enters death against his will, and he determines when people will leave the realm of death and be raised to life again. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... Jesus himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That means his people don't need to fear death. Death has no power over those who belong to Jesus. Now, in a sense, we could say that Adam was the first to hold the keys to death and Hades because he was the priest king in Eden where the tree of life was. He was supposed to guard the garden. He controlled the entrance. But when he sinned, he himself entered the realm of death. He was separated from the source of life the tree of life. He began to die and death had a claim on his life. But Jesus comes as the second Adam, the one who opens the way back to Eden for us, back into God's presence and back to the source of life, symbolized by the tree of life. And Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades, the keys of life itself. So if we belong to Jesus, we have assurance of eternal life. Jesus is victorious over death. Jesus is also the warrior king. 
When he's described in John's vision as one whose face was like the sun shining in full strength, it's picking up part of the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 10. We saw that earlier. His face was like the appearance of lightning. But the actual language that's used, the specific wording, comes from somewhere else in the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Judges, Judges chapter 5. In Judges 5, we find the song of Deborah and Barak that they sang after Sisera and Jabin were defeated. So the song is celebrating that battle. And the battle is described even in cosmic terms. So Judges 5 and verse 20, From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The stars there can be connected then to Revelation in terms of the associations that are there in the mind of the writer. Okay, Because Jesus holds the stars in his hand here. But the specific language describing the Son of Man and his face comes from the last verse of Judges 5. Judge, Judges 5 and verse 31. Let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. This is the English translation from the Septuagint, the, the Greek version. Let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, and they that love him shall be as the going forth of the sun in his strength. The sun in his strength. That's the language that's used to describe this vision of the Son of Man. Jesus is the divine warrior who is the captain of those who love God. Just as God gave victory in Deborah's day, so too the victory is certain under Christ. Jesus' people can have confidence in their warrior king. There's no need to fear suffering because Jesus is the warrior king whose victory is sure. And Jesus' word is a two-edged sword. We mentioned before that this picture of Jesus having this sword in his mouth echoes Isaiah. It's specifically in the context of the, the Messiah coming as the judge. So, with his word, Jesus judges the nations. He judges his enemies, and he also judges his people. Later in the book, Revelation 19, we find this picture of Jesus as the warrior riding the white horse. Go ahead and turn there. Flip over to Revelation 19. I want you to see this image. Revelation 19. Put yourself in the shoes of these seven churches who are being told that tribulation and persecution are about to ramp up. What effect would that, this description of Jesus have for you? Okay, Revelation 19, look at verses 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
That should give you confidence in this warrior king. He is himself called the word of God. The sharp two-edged sword comes from his mouth and it strikes down the nations so that he can rule them with a rod of iron. These nations that are standing against him will be brought into subjection by his word, his word of judgment, and his word of the gospel. There's two ways you can be brought into subjection. Enemies will be judged. The repentant will be brought into the kingdom. It's accomplished, though, through his word. And the churches get to participate in that by spreading his word. There's two things about this vision that I want to leave with you as words of encouragement this morning. The first one will be a little more brief, and it's simply this point. Jesus is in the midst of his churches. When John begins to describe this vision, where is the Son of Man? Where is Jesus? He's in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the churches. This is just like God's presence with Israel in the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tribes gathered together around the tabernacle and the presence of God came down visibly in their midst on the tabernacle. God appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Here in John's vision, Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. His face is like the sun shining in full strength and he's in the midst of the lampstands. He's present with his people. In the wilderness, God promised his people that they were headed to the promised land, but there would be difficulties and battle along the way. But the Lord would be with them. He would go to battle for them. And Jesus wants his churches to know that he's with them. They're going to have difficulties and battles ahead of them, but he's with them. He will go to battle for them. And the one who overcomes and we'll see that in the letters to the churches, will receive the crown of life. This is not an escapist message. This is not a spiritual message that has no earthly reality. This is not just hang on and you'll be raptured out before it gets really bad. This is, it's going to get bad, but I'm here with you in it. Jesus has a plan for this world. He is its Lord. He is its king. All the kings and rulers of the earth belong to him. Yes, there will be opposition, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. They don't have a chance. The Lord has set his king in Zion on his holy hill. And Jesus asserts his crown rights over this world. His church is where the kingdom has already taken root. And it's spreading, growing, until one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Jesus' message to the churches is, be faithful, be courageous. The Israelites hesitated on the edge of the promised land. They were fearful and faithless. But the churches are called to be faithful. And the last thing, and I want to camp on this for a few minutes, that I want you to hear is this message, fear not. Fear not. You guys know I enjoy the 
Harry Potter stories. And in that series, you have um, characters that are called Dementors. And they come and they bring fear. They're a very frightening thing to experience. It can be paralyzing and their end goal is to suck the soul right out of you. They, they just, they bring fear. And um, it's interesting to think about how J.K. Rowling writes about what they do and how you're supposed to fight against them. How do you overcome a Dementor? Well, they summon a Patronus, which is an ally who comes alongside you. Okay? The word Patronus is a word in Latin that has the idea for someone who comes alongside you and defends you. You might think of, I was reading this week, Second Timothy, with a friend, and we, we read the passage where Paul talks about how at my first defense there was no one to stand with me. No one came alongside as an ally. But God was with him. God stood by him. In, in the Harry Potter series, the way that you summon the Patronus is by remembering something joyful. Something that brings you great joy. A past event whose joy is brought into the presence, present and fights against that fear. In other words, it's joy overcoming fear. At the resurrection, you have great joy that overcomes fear because Jesus is alive. And I think that's part of what's going on in this vision is Jesus is presenting himself as the living one. Yes, there's plenty to be afraid of, but there's more reason to have great joy that will dispel the fear. The joy of the resurrection. The angel told the women, do not be afraid. Jesus told the disciples, do not be afraid. This is a command that shows up in scripture over a hundred times. Do not be afraid. Fear not. That's the command that we have here in Revelation. The message from Jesus to John and ultimately to the churches and then to us today as well is fear not. Do not be afraid. What does it mean that Jesus says, fear not? I want to give you several things. And part of this comes from a, an older commentator, James Ramsey, who did a really good job of just kind of thinking through this idea. But let me give you four things. Number one, fear not. The one you fear is your salvation. The one you fear is your salvation. John falls in fear at the sight of Jesus. The majestic, glorious aspects of this vision of Christ are not things, though, that the believer needs to be afraid of. Yes, they are cause to fall in worship, but fear not, Jesus says. These characteristics of Christ are the very things that ensure your salvation. His holiness, his purity, he's the lamb without blemish, the perfect sacrifice for your sins. His searching eyes that see everything, his providence watches over you and guides your path. His bronze feet and his thunderous voice ready to go to war, he's the warrior who fights on your behalf. The sword of his mouth, 
His word is the announcement of good news, the word of salvation to you. So James Ramsey writes, in these very things, John had the brightest evidence of his own and the church's eternal security and triumph. And yet never, not even when he stood in the presence of the cross or afterwards of his persecutors, had he been so utterly overwhelmed as now. Because he's seeing this vision of Jesus in his glory. We often live in fear and anxiety over the circumstances of our lives. But it's the very circumstances that God is using actively to bring about his victory and salvation in our lives. Why are these things fearful to us? Ultimately, it's because we're ignorant. We don't understand what God's doing with them, and that leads us to be fearful. But not only is God aware of these things in our lives, he's providentially using them to achieve his goals for our lives. So fear not, the one you fear is your salvation. Secondly, fear not, your savior is God himself. The vision of Jesus here shows us that he's God. He shares the characteristics of the ancient of days. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And this means that every event, every happening that occurs in your life comes directly from his hand. And it will return to him in glory. What happens to you is not just something he's aware of. It's actually from him. It's for your good and his glory. He's gathering and purifying his people, preparing his bride. And if you belong to him, then you're part of his bride, being made ready for eternity with him. So fear not, your savior is God himself. Third, fear not, his defeat of death is sure. Jesus says, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. How is it that Jesus is alive after having died? God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is God's statement that Christ's sacrifice has been accepted. What Christ offered on your behalf has already been accepted by God. Your atonement is secure. And not only that, he ever lives to make intercession for you. He's interceding between you and God. When you pray, Christ ensures that your prayer is heard and answered. He's opened the way to the Father. And he's your advocate. He's your heavenly lawyer. When the accuser brings up your sin, Jesus, your advocate, stands up and says, that sin has already been dealt with. The penalty has been paid. The fact that he's alive proves that the sacrifice has been accepted and the living Christ actively represents you before God's throne. Let me read for you the way that N.T. Wright writes about this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus issues the surprising command, don't be afraid. Because the God who made the world is the God who raised Jesus from the dead and calls you now to follow him. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a matter of believing that certain things are true about the physical body of Jesus that had been crucified. These truths are vital and non-negotiable, but they point beyond themselves to the God 
who was responsible for them. Believing in this God means believing that it's going to be all right. And this belief is ultimately incompatible with fear. As John says in his letter, perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18 And the resurrection is the revelation of perfect love. God's perfect love for us. His human creatures. That's why... Though we may at any stage in our lives grasp the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead, it takes us all our life long to let that belief soak through and permeate the rest of our thinking, feeling, and worrying lives. Fear not, his defeat of death is sure. And finally, fear not, his dominion extends over all of life and death. Jesus' dominion extends over all of life. He's king of kings and lord of lords. As Abraham Kuyper said, there is no domain of human existence over which Christ does not say, mine. His kingdom is like yeast in a lump of dough. It's spreading through the whole earth a little at a time. His kingdom's like a mustard seed. It seems tiny and insignificant, but it's growing into a big giant plant. Every area of life belongs to him. And there's no person who ultimately escapes his lordship. Everyone who bows the knee will serve him and every enemy will be put down to his glory. The rulers of this world scheme and plan and plot and maneuver, but Jesus is over all of it. So do not fear them. They do nothing outside of Jesus' will. You serve the one who will defeat them. You're on the winning side. So don't be afraid. And not only does every area of life belong to him, but death is his too. No one enters death apart from his will, and no one leaves death except he brings it to pass. The very time and circumstances of your death will happen according to his plan. Going back to the Harry Potter series to illustrate this, in the last book, The Deathly Hallows, there's a scene where Harry and Hermione visit Godric's Hollow, which is Harry's birthplace. They've been on the run for weeks. They've lost track of time. They arrive in Godric's Hollow and they realize that it's Christmas Eve. And this whole scene is a mirror in some ways of the nativity scene in the Bible. But this is one of the darkest, most fearful situations in the entire series. But they come to a church in the town, and it has a graveyard, and they realize that Harry's parents are likely buried there. And as you see the scene, the light is spilling out from the church into the graveyard. The carolers are singing inside the church about the love that is displayed at Christmas. And they look around and they find the gravestone of Harry's parents. And on the stone is carved 1 Corinthians 15, 26, which reads, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Harry's unsure of what that means. So Hermione explains it and she says that it means living beyond death, living after death. And it's that idea that takes 
the fear out of what they're about to face because the threat is death. But if Christ brings life after death, then the sting of death is removed. Fear becomes powerless because of life after death. Jesus uses death to accomplish his will. He uses death for your good. The ties that you still have to Adam right now, your sin nature, the reason that you still today struggle with sin, sinful desires, sinful actions, those ties to Adam will be severed finally at death. In death, you will leave the curse behind. Death is the door through which your Savior brings you into the eternal life that he's secured for you. So fear not. This is Jesus' message for you this morning. Fear not. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that the message of this vision of Jesus comes through loud and clear as we read it. There is incredible majesty and glory. We see that even in the reaction of John as he falls on his face. But the things that that make up that majesty and glory, those very characteristics are the things by which you have given us life. They are the very things by which we can put away fear. They're the things that give us confidence to walk in this life unafraid because you are with us. Give us faith this morning to believe what you say with your word. Your word is powerful. Your word will accomplish what you've said. We ask you to use your word this morning to accomplish what you've said you will do in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.